Welcome to Waypoints, the podcast of fly fishing travel, with helpful travel tips, news and events, destination profiles, great stories, and expert advice from seasoned and experienced traveling anglers. This is your backstage pass to the world of fishing travel. Waypoints is fueled by adventure and brought to you by Yellow Dog Fly Fishing, a hands-on specialty travel and booking company that delivers the industry's very best insider knowledge, logistical support, and trip preparation. Freshwater or saltwater, international or domestic, Yellow Dog has you covered. And now your host, Yellow Dog founder and director, Jim Klug. C.J. Box is the number one New York Times best-selling author of 27 novels and the creator of the Joe Pickett series, one of the greatest collections of mystery fiction stories ever written. As a Joe Pickett addict and a huge fan, I am beyond excited to finally have C.J. on the show, a great way to celebrate our 25th episode of the Waypoints podcast. Over the years, C.J. has collected all sorts of awards for his writing, including the Edgar Allan Poe Award for Best Novel in 2009, the 2016 Western Heritage Award for Literature from the National Cowboy Museum, and the Spur Award from the Western Writers of America for Best Contemporary Novel. C.J.'s books have been translated into 30 languages, and over 10 million copies have been sold in the U.S. and abroad. And along with being a hell of a writer, CJ is also a dedicated and longtime fly fisherman, an angler who is equally at home wading the trout waters of his native Wyoming, fishing for roosterfish in Baja, or chasing bonefish and tarpon throughout the Caribbean. CJ, welcome to the show, and thanks so much for joining us today. Well, it's really my pleasure. Um, you know, I, I've done quite a, I do quite a few interviews, um, but this is the first one I've ever done that, that has fishing as, a, as at least a part of it. So I'm excited about that. Well, Thank it, you. It's second nature for you. So this will be an easy one. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> well, how have things been in Wyoming? Have you uh, been getting out on the water at all lately? I have. You know, um, I live in southern Wyoming, south central Wyoming on a little ranch. And, um, you know, to be very brutally honest, my life hasn't changed very much at all. Um, the only thing that's really happened since the, the pandemic got started is uh, my calendar has been wiped clean of trips and at, at least the last week of the book tour. So that has made me, it's resulted in me being about as productive as I've ever been in my entire life. But um, we just, you know, social distancing is kind of a part of life here where, you know, we can barely see one neighbor from where we live. And, um, We've, I've been fishing, you know, the rivers are starting to come up now, darn it, but um, been out uh, three or four times in the last couple of weeks, and it's been very good. Nice. Well, you know, we're up here in Montana and, and Wyoming, Montana. We're, we're some of the lucky ones for sure when it comes to making it through these weird times. Oh, I agree. Um, you know, I, I have uh, uh, adult children in other parts of the country, and they're all trapped under stay-at-home orders and, um, you know, really kind of suffering through all of this. And, and every time we talk to them, I, I know I drive them crazy by just saying, well, you know, I can't see anything much different really from here. <laughs> life, life is good in the West, that's for sure. That's right. Well, I want to talk uh, to you obviously about fishing and your background there, but of course I have to talk to you about your day job as well. And uh, sure. you, know, you are arguably 
the most popular modern day author for readers that love to fish and hunt and spend time outdoors. I mean, you've accumulated a huge following of, of anglers, hunters, and outdoorsmen. Well, you know, and that's something I really appreciate. Um, you know, when I first got started, uh, you know, this would have been, you know, over, over 20 years ago now when the first book came out called Open Season, um, the protagonist was the game warden, Joe Pickett. Therefore, most of the books take place outside, and because he's a game warden, they involve hunting and fishing and, and outdoor pursuits and um, you know, natural resource issues and other things. But I didn't know when I first got started if there was much of an audience out there um, for these kind of books at all. Uh, there were very few like that um, at the time. There's a few more now, I'm happy to say. But, um, yeah, I hear constantly from um, anglers and hunters and just outdoor people that they found the books one way or the other and that they appreciate them. And I appreciate that, too, because I think I think it's one of those things where there's a lot more readers interested in in outdoors, you know, activities than publishers um, realize. And these books are kind of in the success of these books is kind of a testament to that. Well, for sure. And, you know, we're going to talk a lot about Joe Pickett because he's obviously got some huge fans uh, in the fly fishing world. But before you wrote your first Pickett book in 2001, you were a journalist and, and a small town newspaper guy at that. What is it about a journalism background that seems to produce so many of America's great authors? I mean, you can go down the list, Twain, Capote, Hemingway, Defoe. I mean, all these great writers got their start as journalists, and, and that was some of your early years as well. Oh, absolutely they were. In fact, when I first came up with the, the idea of what later turned into um, open season, I was working for a little weekly newspaper in Saratoga, Wyoming, called the Saratoga Sun. Um, I think, I, you know, and, and I, I, you know, I hear from fledgling writers out there um, all the time, you know, how, with, with asking, you know, how should, how could they do it? How, how could they get published, et cetera? And I always steer them towards journalism and away from um, organized creative writing programs. And this makes some of the creative writing people quite, you know, angry with me. But what I see um, as a reader is I tend to find myself, when I really find an author that I really like, I tend to find out that they have some kind of journalism background. And I think that's because um, they're training, you know, to work in a small town newspaper in Wyoming or Montana means you're involved in everything. Um, you're you know writing features on the you know the 4-H cow that somebody bought on a ranch, and um, I was able to you know interview and talk to just about everybody in all walks of life, um, and get involved in kind of some grungy stuff that later turned out to be great training. But also that means. Um, you have to write on a deadline and you have to get to the point uh, in order to, to keep going because there's generally these newspapers are understaffed and kind of overworked. So, um, yeah, it's good training to get to the point. There's not much difference between a great um, opening line in a, in a novel and a great lead in a feature story. So I think it's training um, and also exposure to other parts of life other than the bubble of, uh, you know, creative writing and, and, and universities and so on. Um, so you can write about real things, you know, some, you know, a little bit about a lot of subjects 
And still to this day, when I'm researching a book, um, if it's set in a different location or if it's about has a topic that I'm not that familiar with, I put on my old reporter's hat and go interview people and try to go there and do those things and talk to the experts on both sides of the issues um, so that I can put those things in the books and have them, have them come across as authentic. Well, it, it clearly shows in, in, in the many books you put out. And, you know, while, while we're a, a fly fishing and travel podcast largely, we've done a number of episodes that talk specifically about great travel writing. And I, I love to ask our guests yeah. about their favorite authors, what they're reading. Tell us a little bit about some of the authors that, that you love and have influenced your work uh, and, and perhaps inspired some of your writing. Sure, there's so many of them. Um, right up at the top, I always put uh, Th- Thomas McGuane, um, you know, of course lives in Montana. Oh, yeah. And is my favorite novelist and stylist. But he's also written um, books of essays on, on uh, horses. And one um, I love, it's hard to find these days, called An Outdoor Outside Chance about um, – you know, hunting and bird hunting and climbing and elk hunting. And then The Longest Silence, which is all fishing essays, and they're great. And uh, so I'm a big fan of his, but, um, but also uh, Wallace Stegner, uh, Cormac McCarthy, uh, Flannery O'Connor. Um, in, the, in the genre, kind of in the mystery crime genre, I'm a fan of uh, uh, Michael Connolly and... Um, I'm reading a John Sanford book right now. Denise Mina is another name I, I really like. But I try, I try to t- read really widely, not just, um, you know, liter- I read literary fiction. I read popular fiction. I read nonfiction. I read essays. I read environmental stuff. And um, I read kind of like a predator to, you know, to learn things and pull things out and, and um, hopefully get better at writing as I do. But um, early on, A.B. Guthrie was a big influence. Oh, yeah. The Big Sky uh, is a classic. Yeah, I just love those books. Um, and uh, a lot of the, you know, the cowboys, those kind of, you know, kind of contemporary. No, they weren't contemporary Western, but they were revisionist Western uh, novels that I, I really love. True Grit, that kind of thing. Um, but, you know, I never read a book about a game warden. And um, that that protagonist came around. The reason he's the protagonist was because uh, that first book was primarily about the endangered species law and how it, how it um, applies on the ground in the real world. And the best protagonist for that story was a game warden. Uh, and I didn't ever plan to write a series at all. Um, the first book was called Joe Pickett. So, you know, in my mind, it was going to be a one-off. But when it finally, after, you know, 20 years of writing it and four years of trying to get it placed somewhere. When uh, Penguin Putnam uh, decided to publish it, they offered a contract with for two more books at that time with Joe Pickett. So that's how the, the series got started. Well, I mean, 20 years ago, when, when you gave him open season, introduced the world to Joe Pickett, did you ever imagine how popular a Wyoming game warden could be? Never. I mean, I make jokes about it when I'm on the road. I, you know, I, I tell a crowd, you know, I always knew everybody out there was just waiting for a Wyoming Game Warden series, and I was the only guy who could bring it to them. But that's not true. No, I had no idea. Um, 
I had just hoped at the time that uh, it would be well received within the Rocky Mountain region, that it would be people would read it and think, um, you know, the characters and the settings and the culture was authentic. That was that was really my goal. I was I was surprised it was classified as a mystery. And I was very surprised that it got um, it won more best first novel awards than any novel to date in, you know, kind of in the mystery crime genre. So, you know, it, it, that was all the shock. Well, I, I think a lot of our listeners, CJ, are familiar with your work. But for those that have yet to read a CJ Box or Joe Pickett novel, how would you describe the series? And, and more importantly, how would you describe Joe as the protagonist in these stories? Well, I mean, Joe Pickett is very much kind of an everyman um, in a way, unlike a lot of protagonists in mystery or crime series. He's he's not the fastest gun he doesn't necessarily beat anybody up he screws up a lot um he's a state employee um he dotes on his wife and and uh and three daughters so he's a family man um but you know his life as a game warden gets him involved in a lot of things outside just you know enforcing game and fish regulations um he's gotten in the first few books i'd say he was pretty naive and um really made some errors and since then since the books take place in real time he's gotten a little more cynical and a little more bitter about things at, at certain times but i think most people see him as um very empathetic uh that he's very much like people they know or even the even the reader themselves and that the things that happen to him could you know could happen to anybody so i think that that's been a lot of the appeal that's what i hear um and that he's just very much different than the average, you know, private investigator or detective or or whatever in uh, in a lot of these kind of books. And um, the fact that there's, you know, it's all set in the outdoors is also different. Although since then, I'm happy to say there have been lots of other writers who have taken taken that on and written fishing and hunting and outdoor kinds of books. But at the time, I think I was about it. Well, 20 books in, I mean, more than 10 million books and counting. People love Joe Pickett. And, and I mean, my father, who's not a huge outdoorsman, he's read every single book. He's a huge Joe Pickett fan. And uh, it's pretty funny, even, you know, with my kids, they've heard me talk about him for so long. That our latest dog that we just got, of course, a yellow lab. We named the lab Daisy after Joe's God. dog in the book. I love that. Yeah, Daisy's in the next room. Right now, um, I love I love to hear that. That's fantastic. Well, is is Joe or when you wrote the the first book, Open Season, did you base Joe on an actual person or anyone that you knew or or still know in Wyoming, or was he just kind of a compilation that came together with the story? More like a compilation. Um, you know, I've since I've met quite a few game wardens um, around in the Mountain West who could easily Joe Pickett could be based on. But at the time I wrote the character, it was more just kind of a, in my mind, just kind of a Western, um, a very a Western icon, a, a kind of a typical Western man. And, um, you know, who's, you know, competent in the things he does, but not, ex, you know, super competent and not super tough. Um, one thing to kind of, I never thought about it at the time, but I think I was on the book tour for the third book. And I had an email on my website um, that said, I'm just paraphrasing, you know, I read this, it was from a woman, I read this book, um, 
because it was recommended to me. Joe Pickett reminds me so much of my father. Um, I, you know, he, and she went on to list all the attributes of kind of strong and silent and Western. And, and it was like you were channeling my father when you wrote this book. And it was written by um, Gary Cooper's only daughter. Um, at the time, she's, she's in New York. And she, had, she felt somehow I was channeling Gary Cooper into the, the subject, in, into the character of Joe Pickett. Because um, he, he grew up in Helena, Montana. And um, I was, I, I guess I never was really thinking of Gary Cooper, but um, I wasn't going to argue with her about that because I think he kind of personifies the kind of person I'm talking about. That's a pretty cool compliment for sure. <laughs> yeah, I've got the chance to meet with her and she told me about, you know, growing up, going bird hunting with her dad and Ernest Hemingway in Idaho and, and uh, meeting all these people. And it was pretty fascinating. And I think Gary Cooper grew up in Bozeman, didn't he? He's a Wyoming or Helen Montana guy? Helen, I believe. He might have been in Bozeman as well, but I know that um, his, his birthplace, at least, is listed as Helena. Nice. Well, good history there. Well, you know, I, I think no doubt Joe has hands down become one of the most famous Wyomingites and certainly the most well-known game warden in the world. You know, as Joe has evolved through your books, you've obviously been able to spend a lot of time with real life game wardens in the state. And I got to think you're probably a pretty big deal with this crowd. You've got to, you know, you've made their department famous all over the world. And I'm wondering if they now have a giant photo of, of CJ box in every Wyoming fish and game office in the state. No, they don't. But, um, because what's funny about it is, you know, the, the, the game, I'm, I'm, the game wardens are great. Game wardens, they they made me, they give me an honorary citation a few years ago, and I do ride-alongs with game wardens um, around. And I know of a couple who um, keep a couple of uh, Joe Pickett paperbacks in their trucks, so when they, they give somebody a ticket, they can ease the blow a little bit and say, "Here, here's a book for you." Um, but the, the, you know, the, the, the headquarters in Cheyenne doesn't love Joe Pickett as much as the game wardens do because Joe Pickett's always at odds with the bureaucracy. And sometimes I, I exaggerate how nasty the bureaucracy can be. So they aren't quite as enthusiastic. So therefore no photos, I think. <laughs> well, that's good. That means you're, you're doing it right. I think <laughs> we'll see. Well, now Joe has a buddy in every book and you get asked a lot about him. His name is Nate Romanowski, an outlaw falconer and with a special forces background, arguably one of the biggest badasses in modern literature. Now, Nate has some huge fans in the Yellow Dog office, and I'll take some serious grief if we don't talk just a bit about Nate and how his character originated. Sure. Nate is, unlike Joe Pickett, Nate is... um Unlike Joe Pickett, and I should say most of the characters in the book, Nate is actually based on a real person, um, a guy I grew up uh, one year behind in high school in Casper, Wyoming, and he was a uh, uh, big guy. He was the middle linebacker on the football team, um, long blonde hair in a ponytail. He was a falconer, and um, he and I got to be friends, and I, I spent a lot of a lot of time, a lot of years, a lot of trips going on falconry hunting trips with him. And then he went off to the Air Force Academy and then um, then to Special Forces and got involved in some things that he's, he kind of tells me about. But the whole world of falconry I learned through him. And um, 
met a lot of other falconers and found out there's all all of them have certain things in common which are be they're very idiosyncratic and very independent and stubborn and um you know they build their lives around falconry and they have certain code and um certain kind of fatalism about them and you know some of them do get in trouble because uh they you know they just live their own lives and don't want to be bothered by anybody so the character of Nate is is based on my friend but also other falconers I've met and many of the storylines the falconry storylines that go throughout the books have come from falconers um, themselves who, uh, you know, figure out how to get in touch with me, write me long emails, tell me stories about falconry and the problems they're having with the government or the state or, or whatever. And I'll incorporate some of that in the books. Well, I'll tell you, he's a guy you definitely want in your corner if you're in trouble. Absolutely. Yeah. He, <laughs> he carries at the time I, I brought him in the book as the third book, winter kill. And, um, at that time I thought he's a bigger than life character. He needs a bigger than life weapon. And at the research I did at the time, it has since sort of changed. But at the time, the most powerful handgun in the world was considered to be the 454 Casul five shot revolver uh, manufactured by Freedom Arms in Freedom, Wyoming. So that was perfect. Freedom Arms, Freedom, Wyoming. And uh, I was able to go take a drive, met with the president of the, the, the company, shot the gun, um, learned all about it, and then from then on, Nate packed that gun until Freedom Arms built an even bigger one, which is a 50 caliber called a Wyoming Express. So Nate uses that from time to time, too. <laughs> Those guys must love you at Freedom Arms. I have sold them a lot of guns. <laughs> I bet you and have. You, you would think that they would give me one, but no, they have not. Well, right there. I mean, we, we need to make a pitch for that. I think if anyone deserves one, it's CJ box. Holy cow. <laughs> well, let no, me ask, they, let me ask you this. You they, interspersed. They, 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 I'm sorry. Go no, ahead. no, please. Sorry. We, we, we're stepping on each other a little bit here. That's the joys of, uh, of recording over the phone lines these days rather than in person. So please finish. I was just going to say the, the president of the company there has told me that, um, every year people stop from as far away from Germany at their little factory and buy, buy the 454 Casul because they've read about it in the book. They, they ask if Nate's been around lately? Yes. <laughs> well, that's good. Well, let me ask you this. So you inter intersperse fly fishing into a lot of your books and have over the years. And the cool thing is that it's done right. And what I mean by that is that so often when you read an excerpt from a novel that talks about or references fly fishing, if you're an angler, you read it and you think to yourself, well, that is that's completely wrong. How did the author not do their homework to make the fishing elements authentic and, and genuine? You know, you ask yourself, do these people even fish or have they been fishing? And that's one thing I've always loved about your books. When you write about one of your characters who's on the water with a fly rod in hand, I mean, it's legit. It's it's correct and it's authentic. Well, that's important to me, and 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 I, you know, there are there's a lot of like gun nuts out there who read these books and you know, try to pick apart any kind of firearms, um, any kind of logistics that go to a firearm. And I have to admit, I'm kind of that way when it comes to fly fishing and when I read about it, especially in novels. And there's always a few tells where you know they got it wrong. Sometimes they'll, you know, say things like, what kind of lure are you using? Or, you know, I'll, I'll get my fishing pole and join you at the river. And so there's, there, I'm, I'm really sensitive to that kind of thing and getting, trying to get the terminology right and also the, 
just the mindset of it. Um, you know, I love it, but I also know it's, I think it's, I think it's like golf in a, in a novel. If there's too much fly fishing, it turns off everybody, but the most dedicated fly fisherman, just like if there's a, a novel that has a bunch of golf in it, that's going to turn off everybody. So I just try to have enough and signal that Joe Pickett is, 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 is a fly fisherman and an ethical one and enjoys it and have him do things like even in the middle of a murder investigation as he's you know driving over a river he notices that there's fish rising and he has to stop to look at them um, and you know vow to come back later and I think with a fly fisherman that resonates with others it probably doesn't well you know in your stories you might have a character that is you know say fishing from a drift boat or doing something completely different, you know, riding horses in the back country, touring on the rodeo circuit, shooting all types of weapons, as you've just talked about, you know, working with raptors, driving a semi, or even lying in a river, breathing <laughs> through a straw, one of my all-time favorites. But, you know, when you're writing about and creating these elements for your stories, are you actually doing all of these things as part of your research in, in order to get it right? I mean, are you out there making sure that, you know, you're speaking from a first-person account with so many of these things? I do. I think all, of all those things you listed, I think the only thing I haven't done is lay in a river and breathe through a straw. Um, <laughs> but I've done all the other things, and I try to, you know, if, I, if I'm going to write about it, I want to be able to do it kind of, you know, from the inside out. Because there's certain things, no matter how much research that you do, you can't render authentically unless you've done them. I, and, and there's other things you pick up um, by doing them that you never thought of. I remember the... Uh, you know, being able to climb up to the top of a wind turbine in Wyoming on a windy day. And the reason I did that was because I needed to find out for the book I was writing if it would be possible to um, basically to, to lift a body all the way to the top and chain it to one of the turbine blades. Because um, that, that actually opens up a novel with a, a body flying around on one. And yes, it's possible. They had their, There's a chain and pulley system in those big turbine um, uh, towers so that they can bring, you know, uh, equipment to the top. But what I didn't know is that the things actually sw like sway in the wind when you're inside and you're climbing up in the dark on a ladder and you're swaying back and forth in the wind. And that um, the wind, at least in my case, it was so strong when I got to the top and we threw open the cover that you had to um, buckle yourself onto t uh, little turnbuckles just to stand up or it would blow you right off the top. Uh, so things like that, you know, um, I couldn't put in the books unless I'd done them because I don't know where else I would get that information. Well, yeah, those, those wind turbines are huge. You don't realize how big they are until you're standing at the base of one because you always see them from far off and they're dotting the hillsides and you think, okay, windmills, I get it. But those things are massive. Yes, or how high you are when you get to the top. It's amazing. Well, what are, what are a couple of the other craziest or most surprising things you've done, aside from climbing wind turbines in, in, a, in a windstorm, that you've done in the name of literary research for your books? <laughs> well, some of it's pretty fun. Like um, for a non-Joe Pickett book called Back of Beyond, I went and did, a, a I think, a five-day um, wilderness horse pack trip into Yellowstone. Um, to kind of get, get the, the rhythm of it. And, um, and I learned a lot from the outfitter and, and, and not so, not so much wilderness stuff is, is like what group dynamics. If you have 
seven or eight people who've never met each other and they're all going on a forced, you know, not forced, but on, on a trip together where they can't, they have to be with each other every minute. How do you deal with those personalities? I found that fascinating. Um, also, I get to do fun stuff like for this, the most uh, recent book, Long Range, they came out in March. Um, I went to gun, uh, a company called Gunworks and Cody. Mm-hmm. that manufactures ultra-long-range uh, shooting rifles and um, optics. And their, their claim to fame is that, you know, for the eleven or $12,000 it costs to buy one of their rifles, you can hit something at 1,500 yards right out of the box. And I, I was able to demonstrate that. And I was hitting targets I couldn't see with my naked eye. So by doing that, then I can, I can translate that to, uh, to the books. Well, you know, another thing is you're not afraid to incorporate controversial issues into your storylines and plots that oftentimes are very real issues here in the West. Things like the endangered species issues, public lands, oil and gas drilling, wind energy, of course, we just talked about that, mining, you know, the rampant growth and development that we're seeing in a lot of these areas. But, you know, you weave these issues into your stories and and it really adds so much more authenticity to your stories because you you know your subject matter on that. Well, thank you. Yeah, that's and that's something that's always been really important to me because I've always thought, um, you know, th- these kind of books are not just about the whodunit plot line. In my mind, they're also about a snapshot of the modern West at the time the book is written and what's going on. And I I hope that you know. Someday, if somebody wanted to know kind of what it felt like to be in the Mountain West in, you know, 2020, um, they can pick up one of these books and get kind of an idea of what what it was like, what people were talking about, what the issues were, and so on. But I also think it's very important. Uh, I try. I sometimes I fail, but I try really hard um, when I introduce you know controversial subjects, usually environmental that. I have both sides of the issue portrayed in the book. And there's usually that usually means an advocate on both sides explain their part, and I trust the reader just to kind of come down where they may without making them agenda books. But um, you know, I don't write the kind of books where all developers are bad and all environmentalists are good. And if uh, somebody from business is introduced you know that they're going to be behind the plot in the end. I think I, I read those kind of books and I get turned off by them really quickly because I think the author hasn't looked at the subject matter enough or they have an agenda of their own that they want to hammer into your head. So I try to have both sides um, in there at least. Um, sometimes, I, sometimes I'm not successful. Sometimes there are issues that are just pretty hard to de- for the other side to defend on no matter what it is. Um, and that's happened too, but generally I try to have, you know, make it as balanced as possible. Well, which comes through in the storylines and it's not an easy thing because these are complex issues, you know, out here in the West for sure. Right. And it, you know, it, it, it's, it's, and it, it goes to the, not only the books themselves, cause I'll hear from people on both sides after they're written, but even like, you know, as I'm kind of required as an author to, you know, do a certain amount of social media, and um, I like to post fishing pictures, and that's the only thing I post. I never do hunting um, any, or, you know, anything like that. But I'll post a photo of a, me holding a big trout saying, you know, 
this rainbow was caught and released on the North Platte River or something. And the comments will always say, hmm, that must have been good eating. Or, you know, I hope you put it back. It's like, geez, come on, people. You read the whole thing. Yeah, you can't just can't just like the photo. You got to comment on it, right? You got to right. got to sound yeah. off. Well, let, let's get back to fishing. At, at one time, you actually worked as a fishing guide in Wyoming, and you've got a background in the industry. I do. I was never a sophisticated fishing guide. I'll be honest with you. Um, it was uh, 35 years ago. It's when I was working as a newspaper reporter, and in the place I worked um, has a pretty vibrant you know, local fishing economy on the river. And there were a couple of the guides when they had too many clients or big parties, they'd call me in to fill in. And at the time, um, there were very few fly fishermen. I mean, this was the last few years of the meat fishing almost. There, uh, there were still people throwing minnows on minnow harnesses and all hardware on the river. And as I was, um, as I was kind of leaving this area, was when there started to be an outcry about slot limits and fly fishing and catch and release. And it's been extremely successful. And so it's a whole different world now. But yeah, I was, you know, I mean, I, I used to guide at a time where some fishermen would measure, measure the day by how many six packs they drank, you know, from when you launched the boat to when you pulled it out. Um, or, you know, that a trip was only successful if you ended up with your limit. So I've seen both sides of this, and I've, you know, firmly come down on the side of, you know, not keeping fish unless you're in the wilderness or you're going to eat them, and um, that it's a great sport and that everybody should be have the opportunity to catch big fish and release them. Well, there you go. Well, you know, growing up in Wyoming, how did you first find your way to fly fishing? Did you have someone who taught you? And, you know, how old were you when you kind of got turned on to not just the sport but the lifestyle of fly fishing? You know, I, it was probably, I was probably 10 or 12. Um, and you know, and it wasn't a, uh, it wasn't like a stylistic choice or a moral choice or anything else. It was because I had an, we were in the, uh, we're camping in the Bighorn mountains and I had an uncle who was catching more fish on grasshopper flies, more brookies on grasshopper flies than I could catch on real grasshoppers and, and worms. And I thought that, you know, it was because it was he was more effective. And I, you know, I thought it was, it was so hard to cast the first time. And it took a lot of years to make the absolute transition between spin fishing and fly fishing. Um, but probably I haven't you know, used a spinning rod in 25 years now. And, um, you know, now I've learned a lot and been able to not only fish the West, but through you guys, fished a lot of places around the, the world. And, um, you know, it's just, it's, I'm just passionate about it. It's my favorite sport. Well, you know, with your success over the years, you've been able to travel the world. And I want to talk about that in a minute in some of your favorite places. But do you still have a, a specific river or a fishery that you consider your home waters that are you know, still a favorite place and, and special for you for that connection? Absolutely, and it's it's the Upper North Platte River. That's where I live. That's where our, our little ranch is. Um, it, it's uh, that's in southern Wyoming, and it's a free flowing river. And I kind of I consider you know sort of my home water to go from the Colorado state line all the way up um, to include the Miracle Mile. And so I fished all the stretches of it, and I can see it from my house. 
and it's very challenging because it's not a tailwater. Um, you know, it, every year you, I, I, I'm tracking the snowfall and how high is it going to be when and when is it going to finally drop and, um, you know, is there going to be enough water to last through August, those kind of things. So it's really challenging, but it's really rewarding, too, because I've had some of the best days of my life on that river um, when I hit it right. Um, also, the Encampment River, which flows into it, and those are those are my favorites. Um, around the you know other places, not uh, trout fishing, um, I've got to say I love Baja because um, you know catching Dorado on flies. And last time I went, I caught a 65-pound rooster fish on a fly that just I mean we did the, it just towed us out into the ocean. Um, the one thing I don't think I want to do anymore is catch big tarpon. I caught my one big 95-pound tarpon, and I never want to do it again. Yeah, they're a bit of work, aren't they? Oh, man, I thought I was going to die. I, I, was, I was trying to hand the rod off to other people in the boat. Nobody would take it. <laughs> well, I mean, you're getting around now. You're getting to travel, and, and, and you're doing some, you know, some saltwater fishing. How about flats fishing? I mean, are you drawn to that as far as bonefish and permit goes? And I have bonefished. Mm-hmm. I can't say I'm, as, I'm not as passionate about it as I am other kinds of fishing. I like it, and I'm really glad I have done it. But if I had to choose one or two places, I, I probably would not go bonefishing first. Um, it's exciting when they get them, but... Um, I'm not crazy about looking at bonefish in my lap. I think they're ugly. <laughs> oh, you're definitely going to get some comments about that from our listeners. Oh, I know. I, I, but, you know, that's it's true. <laughs> they're fun to catch, but not fun to hold or look at. Well, well, how about future trips? I mean, do you have a kind of a bucket list or any species that have caught your attention that you have yet to to chase after or anything that you're like, oh, you know, one of these days I'm going to go after that species or I'm going to go visit that destination? Anything on your list? I would, you know what? I have never been steelhead fishing and I feel really like I've missed something in my life. I want to do that. Um, Golden Dorado is another one that I'd love to try. Um you know, I have caught salmon, but I have not ever caught a salmon on the fly. So those are those are things I'd like to try. Well, that, and that's the cool thing is if, if it swims, uh, there's a good chance it'll eat a fly. And so the list is right. always long, no doubt about it. No doubt about it. Well, I've got another fishing-specific question for you. So it, it seems natural that, that Joe Pickett is going to be a trout guy, right? And he's likely a, a dry fly guy at that. All right. Well, as for Nate, let's say that Nate got into fly fishing. Okay. What kind of fly angler would Nate Romanowski be? And what would be his favorite species and destination? Oh, what a good question. That's something I've never thought of. Um, he'd probably want to go after the big, he'd probably want to go catch a tarpon and, 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 you know, battle wills with it and, and maybe get it in the boat or a marlin or something like something ridiculous like that. <laughs> well, we, we could picture that or, you know, just a suffer fest where he's out in, you know, a blizzard steelhead fishing, you know, with nothing but a t-shirt or something like that. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> if you recall, Nate's only, the only time Nate has been around a fish in the books is when he has, he has one that he beats another man with. And then it freezes, and then he uses it as a club. So he hasn't really spent a lot of time on the water. He hasn't found fly fishing quite the quiet sport. Hasn't really grabbed him yet. (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, I, I want to know, you know, 20 books into the Joe Pickett series. Um, I want to know that when you hit like Pickett book number 25 or 30, are we going to see Joe and Mary Beth like finally retire and say move to Belize where they can, you know, calm down and, and manage a fishing lodge and, and relax a little bit? I mean, is, is he ever going to catch a break and just have things easy for him? That's kind of a cool idea. Um, well, you know, I, a few years ago, I realized um, when I was working on a book, I, I thought all of a sudden it hit me. I don't know how Joe, how old Joe Pickett is. And because the books happen in real time, I need to keep that very accurate. So I had to go back to open season, um, found a reference where he was 34, and then track each book. Because some happen a year from the last, some six months, some four months, some back-to-back, and realized at that point he was 49. So in this new book, the one I'm just finished today, I finished a new book today that you and I are talking. He's 51. So by the way it's kind of progressing, um, he's going to be around for a while still uh, before he'd actually you know, need to retire. So I never think too far ahead. I don't, I've not think thought of an end game yet. I'm just going to kind of take it as it goes. Well, and I've got another question for you. Speaking of it, so he's 51 years old in the next book. In long range, uh, I, I couldn't pick up what his badge number was in 20 books in. Have we figured that out, where he is in, in that lineup of it's, Wyoming Game Wardens? I had to go, yeah, do my research on that one, too. It's now stick number 16. Huh. And uh, and for those listeners who don't understand what we're talking about, Wyoming has a has kind of a goofy system where there's only there's 50 game wardens in the state of Wyoming, um, and there have been 54 years, and the newest game warden hired is badge number 50, and as they uh, grow in seniority, they get a new badge number sometimes every year, so um, conceivably Joe Pickett someday might be badge number one but he's not there yet and he gets in trouble and they take his badge away and he has to start over sometimes. Yeah, he's been knocked but back a couple of times, I think. <laughs> yeah, this in this one he's number 16. That's good to know. Well, I'm glad he's moving up the food chain. He certainly deserves it. <laughs> do we have a do we have a name for the new book yet? It's going to be called Dark Sky. Nice. Dark and Sky. It's, it's a book I'm really really I know we're just we're talking about the next one it won't be out till next March, but I really wanted to do a book where I stripped it down to the, just down to the paint, you know, um, and you really made it a, an outdoor isolated, um, kind of claustrophoric outdoor story, um, with very few other elements in it and, uh, kind of brutal. Um, and, and I, because I haven't been traveling because of this pandemic, I, I, you know, finish the first draft of it much faster than I ever have before. And um, I'm, I really, I'm really excited about it. Well, we are too. I mean, dark skies next March. I, I can't wait. Um, as we said, we're all addicted to these books and uh, it seems like we finish them about three days after they come out. So we'll be looking forward That's to that. Great. One. Thank you. Well, and your name's in one of them. You've got a got to mention that. Well, I, I was actually just about to ask you about that. Aside oh, from the, okay. the Joe Pickett series, you have seven other books, including the Cassie Duel series, uh, the second Correct. of which is titled Badlands. And there are a number of characters in that book who, who sound very familiar to some of us. Am I allowed to talk about that? Sure, of course. <laughs> well, I, I love the fact that when when we read the book, 
um, you know, you go through and, and it is a number of people that work at Yellow Dog Fly Fishing are featured in the book, Tom Melvin and Brian Gregson. Uh, I, I'm lucky enough to be included in that. But my business partner, Ian Davis, he, he has like the leading role in the book. I mean, he's an all-star. <laughs> yeah, for, for no good reason other than um, just the name. You know what I do? when I, My writing process is, um, you know, I, I, I do a long outline. I outline the characters, but I don't outline their names. And I'll just say character number one, character number two, character number three. And then as I write the book, um, when I get to that point, then, I, then I'm in a desperate search for names to fill in. And I remember writing that book, and I remember I had a, a yellow dog catalog on my desk, and it was like four, four, character, four cops all on a big stakeout. And I, I just grabbed the, the catalog and, and went to the page with everybody's name on it and, and listed them on there. And I don't think I told you about it until the book came out. I don't think. No, no, we didn't know until it came <laughs> yeah. out. It was an awesome surprise. Every, everybody dies or gets maimed, I believe, but that, that always happens. Well, Ian loves to lord it over me. He's like, you know, because I think my scene in the book is I'm a, a cop in the break room who's like hoarding the donut box. And Ian is this, <laughs> you know, kind of reckless ponytailed detective. And so he, he just lorded that over me for a, a whole year. Thankfully, until the next book came out, I beat him to the punch. I, I read it and I, I just called him. I said, yeah, you're, it does not end well for you in this next book. I got to tell you right now. So. <laughs> and absolutely none of it is personal. They're just names attached to characters. <laughs> oh, no, I, I told him it was definitely personal. So that's perfect. Yeah. But, well, that is so good, and 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 we, uh, boy, we we love working with you and and being a, a small part of of uh, you fishing uh, all over the world, and and we look forward to more years of it. And I hope the next time you come up to Bozeman and uh, you know do a book signing at the, at the country bookseller, that you'll spend an extra day and 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 join us out on the river. I would love to do that, and um, I I can't tell you I've got. Well, I can tell you, there's going to be a television series um, called The Big Sky that is um, based on all the Cassie Duell novels, which are all set in Montana. And that they're going to start filming that in July in Montana. And um, I'm going to come up and visit the set at some point. And I believe that they're going to, if they if they stick to the books, it's going to be filmed kind of around Bozeman um, to Livingston. And if that happens, I'll get in touch with you. And uh, loved it, loved it. Stop by. Well, that'd be great. You've got a lot of fans in the Yellow Dog office, and and uh, we'd love a chance to get you out on the water. CJ, this has been so great. I can't tell you how much I appreciate you joining us today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Well, it's been a pleasure for me too. This is fun. I I really wish most of these kind of interviews we could talk about fishing, and this is the only one ever in twenty years. So thank you. <laughs> Well, I will say to our listeners that if you are not yet a CJ Box reader, you need to do yourself a favor and, and just dive right in. With the Joe Pickett series alone, you have 20 books and an epic set of adventures that take place in some of the greatest places in the U.S. West. Uh, I would recommend that you start with the first book, Open Season, and go from there. Uh, you start at the beginning and you will be completely hooked. And you can learn more about CJ and his work at, at cjbox.net. And, of course, find his books at pretty much every bookstore on the planet, I think. 
Well, that's it for this episode of Waypoints, the podcast that is 100% dedicated to travel, adventure, and exploration. Be sure to visit yellowdogflyfishing.com to plan and research your next fishing trip. Sign up for newsletters and new podcasts and stay up to date on the latest travel news and developments. Join us for our next episode of Waypoints. And remember, life is short and no one ever regretted a life of adventure. This has been another episode of Waypoints, the podcast of fly fishing travel and adventure angling. Thank you for joining us and be sure to visit yellowdogflyfishing.com for more trip updates, travel news, expert advice, and adventure profiles. Thank you.